Um, thank you very much, uh, Kevin, Patsy, and myself for the warm welcome we've received the last two weeks. And not that that really surprises me, but I hope you know that that warm uh, welcome is very much reciprocated. It's really a delight uh, to see your partially familiar faces. <laughs> I guess, uh, how else can I say it? And um, I'm happy to be able to be part of giving Pastor Will a little bit of a break. I know in, in days when I didn't have an associate pastor, sometimes uh, pulpit supply could be a tough thing to find up, up here. And so I'm, I'm glad to help him out, and I've been praying for him that uh, he and his family will come back refreshed to you. My desire in this uh, mini-series of sermons um, was to bring some comfort food to your soul. And comfort food for me has always uh, been a book like First Peter, which I think is rich in comfort food for really for tried and suffering saints. Uh, last week, we looked at the first uh, three, well, th- verses three, three, four, and five of First Peter chapter one, which perhaps we could summarize as a theology of glory, we might say. Um, that imperishable, unfading inheritance, that, um, uh, that uh, wonderful uh, gift of resurrection um, that, uh, that God has given us, eternal life. Uh, today, uh, we're going to look at verses 6 through 9 of 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll, I'll read that whole section again just, in, just here in just a minute. And I think we can call this a theology of trials, a theology of suffering. And the joy of our inheritance in Christ is not contradicted by the trials we face in life, but I do think it's awfully important that we have a theology of trials. And I do mean that word theology, word from God. I know there are plenty of resources out there, popular, various places around. Anywhere you look, you can find five tips for coping with tough times. Okay, maybe that has helped sometimes. But five tips for coping won't help you go the distance. It really won't. Only a word from God will help you do that. And that's why I say uh, we need a theology of trials. And we'll find, I think, that that's exactly what Peter gives us. So 1 Peter uh, 1, verses 6 through 9, but I'll reread verses 3 through 5 as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us pray. 
Our Father, we thank you for uh, the resources, the uh, heavenly manna that you give us for this pilgrimage of ours. And we thank you for this uh, tried and true word from Peter, a suffering saint himself and, and, and one inspired by your spirit. May it uh, equip us now with wisdom as we face trials, uh, to do so with wisdom and in a way that keeps us in the way of faith and, and love and joy. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. New believers need a theology of trials. I think sometimes in the church we don't do enough work with new believers and young people, getting them ready for that so that when trials come, they're kind of taken by surprise. Which Peter says later in his book, that's one of the reasons I'm writing about this, because I don't want you to be surprised by suffering. However, I think it's one of those things that you can't hear too often. Even seasoned believers, as many of you are, uh, we still need to hear this. And so from these verses that I've read, verses 6 through 9, I'd like to summarize this theology of suffering in three ways. First point is we will face trials in this earthly life. Secondly, the purpose of these trials is to prepare us to see Jesus. And third, these trials do not have the power to cancel your faith, love, and joy. So then, first of all, we will face trials in this earthly life. Peter says several things about this in, in, in verse 6. First of all, he says, um, though now for a little while, he describes these trials. And remember, the, in Peter's day, there was, there was persecution pretty widespread across Asia. Many of the people to whom he, were, he was writing uh, were actually being uh, persecuted, may have been the Neronian persecution at that time, perhaps lines up with the dates of Peter. But, but, but he says to them, your trials are for a little while. Now, I wish I could stay, stand up here and say that if you're going through trials, Peter's telling you that they're only going to last a couple of weeks at most. Unfortunately, that's not what a little while means. What he means by a little while is this passing age. You'll have these trials in this passing age, which compared to the eternal, imperishable inheritance God has given you is just the twinkling of an eye. But for a little while, you will have these trials. And then he says, he also describes them, notice, as you have encountered various trials in verse 6. And I think it's helpful just to keep that in mind. Um, it's not one size fits all. Trials come in different sizes and in different shapes, and we might say even uh, differing intensities. Uh, there's a trial like persecution, which these believers had. There's a, there's, there are health trials, as some of us have had, as some of you are going through their financial trials. And, and then there, there are just the daily nagging things that every day seem to, seem to some, in some way or other, put, put our faith to the test. I think it's helpful, and I think in a good sense humbling, to remember and realize that there's a kind of democracy about trials. That, that all of God's people are going to encounter them. Churches, families, individuals, 
Everyone's going to encounter them. And that's helpful because God bless the Lord's people. We can be a pretty judgmental lot when it comes to trials that other people are having. And we may not say it, but we think, oh, they're having family troubles. Well, obviously, they're not practicing Christian principles of parenting, obviously. We think things like that. Or someone has health issues, and we think, well, obviously, they didn't take care of themselves. Or someone's having job troubles. Well, obviously, they're just, uh, they're, they're not mature enough to, to really handle this whole job. What terrible things we say. And I think it's humbling to remember that if your time hasn't come, your time is coming. And I don't think you want to be on the receiving end of things like that. How much better would it be when brothers and sisters are going through trials to bear their burdens and to pray for them and not to be judgmental? I think this democracy, if you want to call it that, of trials is helpful in that way. Another thing that Peter says about trials, and again, we're just sort of getting a preliminary description of these trials in this earthly life. He says, you have been as he says in verse 6, grieved by various trials. Um, trials hurt. Now you might think, well, you don't even need to say that. By definition, they do. But, but it's worth saying because I think there can be a kind of piety that doesn't want to acknowledge in your faith that you're really hurt by what you're going through because you're afraid someone's going to think you're whining. And there is such a thing as whining. And whining is usually about smaller things, and it's kind of an unbelieving, self-centered, self-pitying tone. And I think we know it when we do it. But that's different from acknowledging and recognizing that the trials you're going through are really hurtful to you. I was talking with a, with a couple last week after the service, and they were describing something they're going through, and they said, this is really I thought it was so good that they say that. People need to know that. You're not whining. I can remember years ago, a delightful young Christian woman in our congregation. She was just delightful, enthusiastic. Everybody liked being around her. And she was going through some terrible times with her parents. Combination of unbelief and health issues in her family and all these kind of things. But whenever she'd talk about it, it was always positive. It was always sunny. It was always what the Lord is doing, and it'll be all right, and all this kind of thing. And I said to her at one point, privately, I didn't embarrass her in front of him. I said, you know, it's okay for you to hurt over this. It really is. You're not letting the Lord down. And I'll never forget, she paused, and the floodgates of the great deep just burst open at that point. And she thanked me later for saying that. And sometimes we need to encourage others by just saying that. This is not something that you're whining about. It's okay for you to hurt over this. You're not disappointing God. In fact, acknowledging this will help you bring it to the Lord and say that. I love the book of Ruth. It's another of my comfort foods. And in preaching the southern New England uh, sermon circuit, as I've been doing over the last couple of years, I've pretty often preached a text from Ruth uh, here and there. And... Um, I don't know if you remember the details of the book of Ruth, but Naomi uh, goes to Moab with her husband and sons during the famine. In Moab, she loses her husband. She loses her sons. She comes back with Ruth, which is a great blessing, but she is impoverished. And as she comes back, people are saying in Bethlehem, can this be Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi. 
which means pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter. Now, I have a pastor friend, and years ago, we were both preaching through the book of Ruth at the same time. And uh, he, when he came to Naomi, I, th- I think he wasn't very kind to Naomi. He, he said when she said that, she was just sinning. She was just sinning against God. And I thought, no, I think you got it wrong. Give her a break. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's broke. She is, in a sense, a stranger again in a strange land. She is simply saying, this hurts. And that's all right to say that. And it's clear as the story unfolds that Naomi's a woman of faith. That's not her... Saying that she's bitter was not, uh, was not the soundtrack of her life. It was a moment, but it was an important moment that she would say that. So these trials hurt, and it's good to acknowledge this. And why bother even saying this? Well, as I've indicated before, Peter says later, chapter 4, verse 12, I'm saying this so that you won't be surprised by these trials. And I think it's also worth recognizing, as he'll say in chapter 5, verse 9, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I think there's a kind of comfort in knowing that we're not going through anything that other brothers and sisters aren't going through. I think there's a comfort in that. We're not being singled out for some kind of focus from God because he's angry with us. We're going through, maybe not identically, but the kinds of things that brothers and sisters throughout the world are going through. And I think there's a comfort. Well, there's a first point of summary of what Peter's saying. We will face trials in this earthly life. In the second place, I'd like you to point out, I'd like to point out that Peter is saying, These trials prepare us, are preparing us, to see Jesus. Peter says uh, in verse 6, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And as as we often do before I preach on a passage, we, Patsy and I read this, the passage I'm going to preach on in our devotional time. And as often, she asks good questions, and she, she asks me, so why does Peter say if? They're obviously suffering, so why does he say if? The best answer I can come up with there is is the recognition that trials do tend to be seasonal. If God was was putting us through trials all the time, 24-7, 365, over many years, I'm not sure we could bear that. We all have our daily trials, I'm not denying that, but but, but these kind of fiery trials that Peter is talking about, they, they do tend to be seasonal. And I think that's why he says, if necessary, right now, you're going through these, uh, these, these trials. The word necessary may bother people. Why does he say that these trials are necessary? Um, Peter knows Lamentations 3.38, where the prophet says, is it not from the mouth of the Lord that both bad and good come. These these trials are from God. But but they're necessary? I mean, I'm going through this treatment, and I'm sick, and 
goodness is necessary? And the answer is, if you could see your situation the way the Lord does, you'd say, yes, it's necessary. Because God is good, and he's wise, and he's holy, and he would only send you through what is ultimately good. He would never do it were it not necessary, granted in a way we cannot see now. And this is all for a wonderful purpose. Wouldn't it be terrible to be in some kind of existentialist hell where we just have meaningless suffering? What a terrible thing that would be. That would break you. But that's not the case. And notice what Peter says in verse 7. Why these trials? So that. So that. There's a purpose. And the purpose is to prepare us to see Jesus. Let's read it again. That the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whatever your trials may be, brothers and sisters, God is at work in them and through them for a beautiful and wonderful and ultimately glorious purpose when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. And we must remember that. And we must often sing about it. Thank you, Bill, for the hymns you picked for this service. Great, appropriate for this text. And Will, I believe, picked the, the lessons. And I, again, right on target. Go back and read James 1 again. Go back and read Romans 5, and you find the same thing said in Scripture over and over again. God is interested in the tested genuineness of your faith. You know, the guys at Pratt Whitney used to talk about how the trouble they went through testing the engines, testing the new engines, putting them under pressure, putting them through conditions so they made sure the things worked. Going after tested genuineness and that's precisely what God was doing in Naomi's life and it's what he's doing in our lives for some reason I don't remember the context Mark Popovich sent me an email and he was remembering a sermon illustration that I'd used a long time ago that I'd actually forgotten and he actually remembered he said didn't you use a didn't you use a illustration about walking sticks from Scotland and I said oh yeah I did didn't I use that sermon Back in Scotland, when we did our pulpit exchange many years ago, one of the things I learned was that the best walking sticks, some of the Scottish people love to do what they call hill walking, which is kind of in between mountain climbing and just walking on a path. It's pretty rough terrain, so a lot of people use a walking stick. The best walking sticks come from the west coast of Scotland. Why do the best walking sticks come from the west coast of Scotland? Because the wind is always blowing on the west coast of Scotland. And it's always blowing on the trees. And it's always breaking them a little bit. And then they regrow more strongly at those broken places. And they're broken again. And they heal. And that's exactly like the faith of the saints. The wind blows on us. And it breaks us. And God heals us. And we're strong at those places. Not self-sufficient. And then maybe we're broken again and we're healed again. Yes, uh, those walking sticks are a pretty good illustration, I think, of what God does in our faith. And Naomi, having lamented the bitterness of her circumstances, 
immediately shows that she believes God's promises about the kinsman redeemer because she begins to help Ruth begin to go seek Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer. She believes the promises of God and ultimately that's talking about how we ought to go to Jesus Christ for all that we need. This faith, our faith, now let be very clear about what Peter's saying here. As shocking as it may sound to you, God is preparing our tested, genuine faith so that he will crown our faith when Jesus comes again. Notice what he says. Your faith may be found. And that, 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 that indicates that this is something that, that's going to happen in us. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's not saying when Jesus comes again, we're going to praise, honor, and glorify him, though that's true. But what he's saying here is, when Jesus comes again, he's going to crown that tested, tried faith, and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's the crown. I put it on your head. And if, you've, if you don't think I'm telling you the truth, um, this is how Peter's thinking. 1 Peter 4, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Chapter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. You hear that? A partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Crowning, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading cloud, crowd of glory. Crown of glory. Paul, the last record, among the last words we know of him writing from prison, 2 Timothy 4.18, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness and for all who have loved his appearing. Yes, God is going to refine our faith. He's going to show that it's not fool's gold, He's going to burn away the dross in the, in the refiner's fire, and he's going to give us a tested, approved faith that he puts the stamp of approval on and crowns us when Jesus comes again, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, that doesn't mean the glory stops there. And if you know your book of Revelation, you know that when the elders are crowned, what do they do with their crowns? They fall down, they cast them at Jesus' feet. So I'm not saying that ultimately we're the glory. I'm not saying ultimately we're the end of all things. We take that glory that God gives us and we'll cast it at his feet for sure. But your faith is a very significant and precious thing. So is your life and God is at work through those trials to prepare you to see Jesus. And when I say see Jesus, I'm not speaking metaphorically here. I'm not speaking in some ungraspable theological way. I mean that literally. I mean, Jesus, the son of God, has taken on our human nature forever. I still think that's a stunning fact about our faith. The Son of God, from eternity, came into our world, took upon himself a human nature, and he will share that human nature forever. So we will literally see him. Now, seeing God is a broader, more mysterious thing. We talk about seeing his throne and his glory and so forth. But we will see Jesus coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, my final point, third point to say about this theology of trial is that trials do not have the power to nullify or cancel your faith, love, and joy. Listen to what he says. Listen to how he, de- how he describes these 
um, battered <laughs> believers, if you want to say. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. First, a negative point. If the soundtrack of our life is pretty regularly gloomy, grumbling, complaining, accusing, Please listen carefully to me, beloved congregation. You can't blame that on your trials. Your trials aren't causing that. Your unbelief is. Your sin is. Because look at these believers. They were tried and tested, and they weren't going around grumbling and complaining all the time. They were clinging to faith, love, and joy in the Lord. Note, we are preparing to see Jesus, but of course now we don't see him. And Peter makes a big point of that. Though you have not seen him, you love him. It must have been interesting for Peter, right? He had literally seen Jesus, and now he didn't. Now he's waiting to see him again. So in a way, he was in a slightly different category. But he can say to them, you haven't seen Jesus in the flesh, but you trust him. You haven't seen Jesus in the flesh, but you love him. And that's the mode of our existence now. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Is there a dimension, is there a sense in which our salvation is not obtained yet? Of course there is. We can say that we are in full possession of justification, no condemnation, God imputes his righteousness to us and our sins to his son. We can possess that, thanks be to God. But our sanctification is not complete, far from it. God's working the character of Christ in us is far from complete. Our glorification is far from complete. So yes, there is still this future consummation of our salvation to come. We walk by faith, not by sight. And just remember that there is a Wonderful, blessed quality that Jesus says for those who haven't seen him and yet believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, Jesus says to Thomas in John chapter 20. And why is that? Why is there this blessedness now in this tried and tested life that we would continue in faith, hope, and love to an an unseen Christ? Because it means that we take God at his word without other evidence. And that pleases God very much. Just like Noah, what evidence did he have that God was going to send a flood? He had no evidence apart from the word of God. And so he started doing what looked to people like a crazy thing probably, building an ark. But that pleased God very much. That he took God at his word. Abraham! Abram, when he was Abram, God said, go out, and I'm not showing you where you're going. Just trust me. Just go. It pleased God. He couldn't see where he was going, but he trusted God. Hebrews 11, 6, those who come to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And probe that just a little bit more, and then I'm done. Not only 
do, does it mean that we take God at his word without other evidence, and that pleases God very much? It also means that we know and trust God's heart towards us. When we're willing to trust and obey, even though we don't see him. Because it's saying to God, Heavenly Father, I know that you're good, you're wise, you're holy, you're faithful, you're faithful half the time in the details of my life, I don't know what's going on, but I trust you. And you're working out this tested, uh, this tested um, genuineness. And that's why in the fire, let us continue then to trust and to obey and to sing God's praises as we do. Amen.